listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. I'm Shadi Mahadima from Three Jewels, Vancouver, and today's guest is Lama Sumati Marut. Lama Marut is a motorcycle enthusiast, a former surfer, a former professor at Columbia University and the University of California, a PhD of comparative literature, a Sanskrit scholar, and a fully ordained Buddhist monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He's highly regarded and deeply loved teacher to students all over the world and from all walks of life. Uh, welcome, Lama Marut, and thank you so much for joining us today on Drishti Point. Uh, thank you, Chevy. It's good to be back on this show and, uh, and to you know, be there, at least virtually, with uh, all my friends in Vancouver. Yeah, for many years you've been uh, teaching and, and you've been calling for a revolution of true and lasting happiness. Can you give us a glimpse into your own spiritual journey and um, your awakening to this calling? Well, I think there are two ways that people get serious about a spiritual tradition. They either bottom out or top out, and uh, both of those things sort of happened to me. I was um, hospitalized for depression, and I lost a a very close friend to suicide, and, you know, the usual kind of, uh, well, maybe not usual, but uh, not unordinary, in ordinary kinds of, you know, suffering that that occurs in in a life if you let it run long enough, and uh, <laughs> and then also the topping out where I, you know, kind of reached all the worldly goals, my secular goals by the time I was in my mid-40s, and I was wondering, well, what's next? And um, so I, you know, started flailing around, you know, we, we all flail around trying to find the source of happiness in our lives, in our relationships, in our, in our profession, in our money, and, and things that money can buy, in our entertainment experiences, our holidays, etc. And, um, you know, I had, I, I had the, uh, you know, the ability really to, uh, to explore very uh, thoroughly uh, all, all of those options and none of them really was working. I, you know, I just wasn't, uh, wasn't finding the kind of deep-seated happiness that, that I think we're all looking for until, uh, until I ran into my teacher and, uh, and ran into uh, the Buddhist path, which, uh, you know, as I, as I have learned it, has, um, has resulted in a great deal of happiness for me. And, uh, and I uh, have spent the last 10 years or so, 12 years or so, trying to, uh, to share some of what I've learned with others. That's great. Thank you. Um... It, it seems in the manifesto that you worded it even more strongly than you've just shared with us now. In, the, in your manifesto, um, your inciting happiness manifesto, you say that one has to be desperate, a desperado, um, in order for us to really come to the spiritual practice. Is, is that the only perspective we can come from, or are there other reasons that somebody decides, do you feel, to um, to step onto a spiritual path? Well, I, I, I actually do think that a, a certain desperation has to be there if the, if the, if the interest in the spirituality is going to be more than just, um, you know, kind of superficial and shallow. Uh, if you're really interested in diving into the deep end of a, of a true, you know, authentic spiritual practice, you have to have the motivation to do that. And, uh, most of us, most of the time, uh, you know, aren't really aren't really that desperate, aren't really that committed to an alternative because things are working out pretty well for us, you know, mm-hmm. most of the time, until, of course, they don't. And uh, so it takes, I think, a great deal of, um, I, I think I think a person will get serious about a spiritual life in one of two ways, they, you know, in addition to the topping out and bottoming out kind of dichotomy. Uh, they, they will understand, they, they will come to an understanding intellectually that, uh, you know, that, that the, the bubble that they're in, you know, uh, in between disasters, that the bubble that they're in won't last. Mm-hmm. That the, you know, the, the, the money, the, the profession, the relationships, the et cetera, et cetera, these are all temporary things. And you can come to that conclusion intellectually, but it's not that easy. It takes, I mean, it's somebody a lot smarter than me and a lot more savvy than me anyway, because, uh, the other way was really the way that, uh, that I think most people come to it, and that is to have the, you know, have the steamroller roll over you and to just like hit the wall and, and realize that, uh, you know, not just intellectually, but viscerally, that, uh, you know, that you're in trouble, that, you know, Houston, we have a problem kind of thing. 
and uh, and uh, and that you need an alternative, that you need a you know some kind of some kind of lifesaver, and uh, and then that's the desperation. That's the sort of you know Thelma and Louise you know kind of desperation at the end of the road, and you look back and you realize that it's just um, it's all suffering. It's all cop cars back behind you, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you don't really know what's in front of you. Uh, but uh, but because of the desperation, because of the fact that you kind of run out of alternatives, uh, except for what you really don't know at, at first will work. You know, you just try it. You just say, "Well, I'm gonna floor the Thunderbird," and you know, see see what see what happens with this spiritual uh, with this spiritual path. Because I know the other ones don't work. So uh, that's what I think. That's where I think the desperation comes in. And and once you've you know grabbed the lifeline of the spiritual path, I mean, once the cars you know, off the cliff and you're afloat, you no longer, you know, it starts to work and you're no longer desperate. So what keeps you going on the spiritual path when, when things become, you know, things start to work and, and you're feeling better? Well, I think that that's a big danger, actually. That's a big danger for um, for a certain kind of practitioner, a practitioner who has, who has been serious enough and um, conscientious enough to actually put a, an authentic spiritual path um, into play in their lives, and things do improve. Your life does get better. And then there's a kind of complacency that can set in. Uh, and you think, well, you know, this is pretty good. This is good enough, you know. It's kind of, you know. And, and um, you know, generally speaking, uh, samsara, they call samsara, you know, this suffering life samsara in Indian religions. Uh, you know, sometimes the lamas say samsara is kind. Uh, it won't let you go, go on too long, you know, in your kind of deluded um, idea that it's, you know, that just because things are working out now, they will always work out. And uh, so, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, samsara comes and slaps you in the face occasionally. And that, that happens with the, with, the, with the mature spiritual practitioner as well as with anyone else. And until and unless you're able to deal with those slaps in a wise, compassionate, mature way, such that they don't derail you, from your spiritual, from your spiritual life, from your happiness, you know you're not done yet. You mm-hmm. see, then you know that you haven't, you haven't, um, you haven't finished the work uh, because, because if you're unhappy for any reason, if you're unhappy, if you're discontent, if you're thrown off, if you're stressed out, it means that you haven't finished. You haven't finished your spiritual labors yet, and so sometimes this can be a test for an advanced practitioner. You know, things start going well because of your your spiritual life, but then because of karma, you know, because because there are things left to clean up, you know, you'll have um you'll have you'll have some more disasters, you'll have some more unwanted experiences, and then then, then the question is how do you deal with them? You know, right. deal with them, you know, in a in a in a in the old way or in a new way. <laughs> and if you you know consistently can deal with the vicissitudes of life. In, in a, in, in a wise way, in a spiritually wise way, you know, then you're, then you know you're making real progress. Okay. And, and what about the practitioner on the other side of what we're discussing? Somebody who's made, you know, sincere efforts over a number of years and still feels like they're very much caught up still in negative patterns. Um, and, you know, still plagued by what seems to be almost the same level of, mental afflictions, how, you know, how does that person to take um, the message of, of change that you've, you've, you're calling for? Well, I mean, you know, we all face this. We all can get discouraged because, um, you know, we're all impatient. And mm-hmm. we wish, you know, we want change to happen, you know, right away, positive change. We want positive change to occur right away. And we're, we're conditioned to this kind of impatience in, in the world that we're living in, where, you know, things happen very, very quickly now. Uh, you know, with communication systems the way they are and so forth. So we have this kind of expectation that, you know, that things will happen, you know, in this kind of quick and relatively easy way, uh, you know, when it comes to our spiritual life too. And, um, you know, uh, if your karma's there, it can't happen quick. But generally speaking, for most of us, we don't have that kind of karma, so it's going to take time. It's going to take time and, and hard work. So when 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 we all feel when we get to all of us, I think have have days like this, if not weeks and months, where we feel like you know, geez, this is I've been doing this for twelve years now. I you know, I've been trying to meditate. I've been trying to you know live a good life. I've been trying to do my yoga for for like twelve, fifteen years, and you know, and I'm depressed. I'm having a bad day, and uh, 
So then what do you do? Uh, that's your question, I think. And, yeah. and you know, for me, uh, you know, it always that desperation then helps. The desperation that got me into it in the first place. Then, you know, then, then I remember it and, and bring it to mind and go, well, what, what else is there to do? You know, what, what is the alternative to, to, to this, you know, this spiritual practice? Even when the spiritual practice seems to be slow and belabored and not really working that quickly. What else, what else am I going to do? Am I going to go back to a non-spiritual life and, and, and hope that that works out? I already know it's not going to work out. You see, so with, with that kind of renunciation, what we call renunciation, with that kind of recognition that the non-spiritual life simply isn't going to bring the deep-seated, long-term contentment and happiness that we think, that we're seeking for. With that kind of understanding, with that kind of renunciation, then you can put up with the, then you can be tolerant, then you can be patient, then you can be persevering when it comes to the spiritual life because you know there's no alternative. There's nothing else to do. Nothing else to do. So, you know, of course it's not going to work out quickly for almost everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, what else are you going to do? And and in the, you know, in the great course of things, in the the big picture, you know, five years, ten years, even twenty years, that's not a big, that's not a big chunk, you know. When it comes to, like, completely rewiring your, you know, your mind and, and, you know, your heart, when it comes to becoming a different person, you know, a 5, 10, 15, 20-year gestation period isn't, isn't sort of unexpected. No, I guess not, but, but we're all impatient. As you <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, you're getting ready to teach a course um, on, a, on someone who actually has reached the other side. They've, they've, they've come to the full fruition of, of the path. The uh, Ashtava Gita, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, oh, you did a real good job. That was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, you're getting ready to teach a course on that. And this is really a text from someone who, who has achieved the, the goals. Um, who's the author and uh, does he share the keys to real and profound change? Yeah, this is, um, Ashta, Ashta means eight and Avraka means uh, crooked limbs, uh, so this is a text that is attributed to a teacher named Ashtavraka, the, the guy with eight crooked limbs. I think that there's actually a yoga pose that was also named after him, an asana, where you put your body into eight, like, crooks or something, eight, eight, yeah, twisted up into eight ways or something. Anyway, uh, Ashtavraka, Ashtavraka was, um, you know, kind of a mythological teacher. It's hard to know when he lived. Uh, as usual with these Indian texts, it's very, very difficult to date them. Most people date this text to about the 8th century um, and attribute it probably to um, some kind of student of the great uh, Vedanta teacher, uh, Shankara, Shankara, uh, Shankaracharya. Uh, Vedanta is, a, is, a, is the philosophy of monism in, in, Indian, in Indian philosophy, in Indian philosophical systems a kind of a radical monism, all is one, ultimately all is one, and um, and uh, multiplicity and the appearances of multiplicity is, uh, are illusions, are maya. Uh, so the Ishtavrika Gita is one of the great, great classics of that of that tradition, and we're going to do an online uh, course, you know, shooting out from uh, from from my from my meditation room in rural uh, Australia, shooting out to um, to the world. Uh, over the course of three weekends in April and May, and uh, it will be aired in Vancouver live uh, on April 20th, 20, 20, the weekend of the 20th and the 27th, and then May 4th. Uh, those are the Fridays, and then Saturday and Sunday also it'll, there'll, there'll be classes, three classes a weekend. The times are uh, kind of complex, but I think that, you know, if you guys go to uh, to my website, lamamaruk.org, you can look at the timetable and find out when, when to tune in. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's an amazing text. Uh, I, uh, you know, my personal story with this text is kind of, like, interesting, at least to me. Yeah, please uh, I, tell us. I've been, I've been teaching in Singapore for, for many years, you know, several times a year. And uh, on one of the visits, I don't know, two, three years ago now, uh, I was asked to uh, to speak at a Hindu um, at a Hindu uh, organization uh, on the Bhagavad Gita, uh, a text that I had been been obsessed with, you know, pretty much my whole life as an academic, and then uh, came back to it as, you know, as a as a Buddhist teacher. And uh, they were kind of interested. These Hindus were interested in what a Buddhist monk would have to say about the Bhagavad Gita. So 
actually they um, they interviewed me before they allowed me to speak. <laughs> the, uh, the the organizers, you know, the, the, they they, we, they had a little sit down with me and said, oh, you know, what do you what do you can actually say about the Bhagavad Gita? And you know, it turns out that that what I what I had to say was not something that they found offensive or anything. So uh, so they let me loose on their on their group, and it was really quite an amazing, wonderful experience for me to be able to to teach a non-Buddhist, uh, a non-Buddhist, uh, group, um, uh, a Buddhist kind of perspective, a Buddhist understanding on the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, at the end of that time, at the end of that teaching, uh, they took me aside, a group of them took me aside and, and said, you know, I don't know if, you, you know, said, you should really know about this text. Hmm. And, uh, and, and they pulled out the Ishtavaka Gita and gave me a copy of it. And I had never really heard of the Ishtavaka Gita before. Uh, you know, it was one of the big holes in my, you know, one of the many holes in my education when it comes to Indian religion. So I didn't know about one of the great classics of uh, of Indian philosophy, of Vedanta philosophy. And uh, and I started to poke around in it in the Sanskrit, and uh, just uh, was amazed, and ended up translating the whole thing. And um, then the the, my, the translation uh, forms the the basis of the course that I'll be teaching in in nine classes on this text. It's it's a text on a concept that um, maybe some of you have heard of in the yoga world. Uh Jiva Mukti. Uh a whole yoga sort of lineage has been named after it. Jiva Mukti means liberation in this lifetime. And uh and this is one of the rare texts actually, I think, in world literature where you get a kind of a glimpse into what a Jiva Mukta, uh somebody who is liberated in this very lifetime, in this body. Uh, what they would look like, what that, what kind of, you know, what kind of mind they would have, what kind of, how, how they would act, you know, what kind of appearance they would take and so forth. And so it's a little, it's a, it's an amazing text about, uh, about the goal, you know, and, mm-hmm. and what the goal really is. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons I really, really like this text is because it's, um, completely non-mythological. It, you know, it's very, very down to earth. And, uh, and, 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 you know, says things like, you know, somebody who is liberated in this lifetime is not going to be walking through walls, is not going to be like, you know, have angel wings and white bodies and, you know, uh, is not going to be floating, you know, six inches off the ground. They're going to look like just an ordinary person. They're going to look like everybody else and they're going to act much like everybody else. In fact, the Jiva Mukta, Mukta, the liberated person, might act in such a way that you would regard them as kind of a fool. Mm. Regard them as kind of an idiot, a kind of a child, childlike sort of simplicity, and uh, so they could easily be mistaken <laughs> for uh, for just another Joe, for an ordinary Joe, uh, and in fact, you know, for maybe like kind of a retarded version of an ordinary Joe, they might look like that. Mm. And uh, it's amazing, amazing text. It goes into great, great detail on um, on the philosophy that that a uh, the, the the worldview that a person like this would have. Right. Is the, the text is considered quite radical. Um, is it because of this description of, the, of what it would be like to be a liberated being and that the fact that the liberated being it, it look, appears quite ordinary? What makes it such a radical text? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a radical text in the sense that, um, that it's really... It's really a text for, for I think, for a, for an advanced practitioner. It assumes, I think, a great deal of uh, preparation. And so we'll talk about that in the courses, too, what kinds of things it assumes. I mean, for, for one thing, it assumes exactly this kind of renunciation that we were talking about before. And, and in its kind of full form, it, 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 it assumes that you are not attached to, you know, to the worldly life, to a life of, you know, of struggle, of money making, of status, of, uh, and especially not to the body, an attachment to the human body. To, it, it says over and over and over again that, uh, that such attachment to the body is the source of suffering, is a source of ignorance and suffering. We are not our bodies. We are more than our bodies. And so this is one of the ways in which, uh, Jivan Mukta a jivan mukta, a person liberated in this lifetime, could be liberated in this lifetime, could be liberated in this very body because they're completely de-identified with the body. And this is a really good text for yogis to hear. It's a yoga text, actually. But especially now in the you know modern West, it seems to me, at least, I could be wrong, <laughs> never know, 
but it seems to me that the way yoga is usually presented and practiced um, increases the identification with the body rather than decreases it. And uh, this is not the goal of yoga. This is not this is not how to reach the goals of yoga. If you're identified with your body, guess what? You're going to get old and die. I mean, for sure. You're going to get injured, probably, as many, many people are nowadays in yoga, 25% or something. Uh, you know, yoga practitioners are not claiming injuries due to yoga. You're going to get injured, and you're going to get old, and you're going to die if you're identified with your body. If that's who you think you are. So one of the radical nature, one of the aspects, the radical aspects of this text as a yoga text is that it underlines what most other, I mean, all of the yoga texts are also saying this, but this Ashtavaka Gita underlines this, this idea that a true yogi is de-identified with their body, and that's how they can uh, be liberated in this very lifetime. That's how they can be liberated from the body, among other things is to de-identify with it. So in one, in one sense, it's radical in that way. In another sense, uh, it's radical in, in, in that it, it points out something that it takes a great deal of practice and wisdom and learning and maturity to understand. It points out a fact, a spiritual fact, that only, I think, um, a very, very advanced practitioner could really grasp. And so we'll try to... We'll try to grasp it even though we're probably not advanced practitioners, most of us, if not all of us. <laughs> and that is that ultimately, okay, ultimately, here's the, here's the radical, here's the most radical thing that, that any religion can teach. And, and many, many versions of religions do teach this. It's not just the Stavaka Gita. You'll find this in, in, in other esoteric, uh, lineages within many, many other traditions, okay? Here it is. You ready? Yes. Most radical thing. The most radical thing that, that you can teach is that there's nothing to do. There's, there's no practice. There's nothing to practice. There's nothing, there's no, there's nothing to meditate on. There's nothing to act upon. There's no karma to create. There's nothing to do. That, that all you have to do is to stop doing the things that prevent you from seeing your natural perfection. And this is the teaching, this is the teaching of the Shtavaka Gita, it's the teaching of Dzogchen, the Dzogchen tradition in the Buddhist tradition, it's the teaching of Tantra, most of, much of esoteric Tantra in both Hinduism and Buddhism. It's the teaching, even I'd say, of advanced, uh, uh, advanced teachings in the Christian, Jewish, and Islamic tradition also. You'll find it in the Sufi tradition, you'll find it in certain Christian mystics and so forth, that there's nothing to do. That the kingdom of heaven is within you, as Jesus said. And, and, or as they say in, in the Buddhist text, that there is Buddha nature, that we all have Buddha nature, and we just have to realize it. We have to realize what's been there all along. And the way, and, and so, and, and so there's nothing to, there's nothing to achieve, there's nothing to attain, there's nothing to grasp to, there's no progress, that, that really the only, that, that really all of that, all of that kind of understanding, what I call a developmental model, a developmental model of the spiritual life that we develop ourselves is just to get us to the point where we discover what's been there all along. Mm. And so, you know, my, my joke on this, the joke I've developed on this is that, uh, you know, I, 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 I wonder if when, when we become jiva muktas, when we become liberated in this lifetime, the first thing we'll say is, don't, you know, like Homer Simpson. <laughs> You mean it's been here all along? You mean there's been nothing to do all this time here? I've been struggling, I've been laboring, I've been doing my practice, I've been meditating, I've been doing my yoga, and it's been here all along like a, like a hidden treasure. Like a treasure that's just been hidden. <laughs> and, uh, this topic is radical in that way because it goes, you know, it, it works out the implications of that, of that understanding, that, what I call the discovery model then, of, uh, of, of spirituality, or works out the, the implications of it, and uh, and one of the implications of it is is what is this, and this is also kind of radical that the very struggle, the very sort of stress and struggle that that impels us to do our practice, that keeps us moving in our practice, is at a certain point the problem and not the solution. That at a certain point, of course, you know, struggle and work, hard work and so forth is necessary. It's, it's a necessary sort of, uh, sort of, um, you know, stage. 
in a spiritual life where, you know, you're working hard to, you know, overcome bad habits and to create new good habits and to, to, to learn discipline and so forth. It's absolutely necessary. Can't, can't skip that. But that at a certain point, that very, that very sort of struggle, uh, that very kind of, you know, uh, sort of emphasis on effort can be the problem itself. And that, and that so the solution to the problem is to just relax and, and, and to, and to stop trying to attain and achieve and just relax into what's been there all along, what, into your true nature, as they say in the Dzogchen tradition, into your, into your real being, it, which is, has never been born and will never die, which is never changing, which can't be developed. It can only be discovered. And uh, that's a very, you know, it's extraordinarily radical. It's an extraordinarily, like, jarring thing for most of us to hear something like, you know, like the Ashtabhika Gita says, says things like in, in the 16th chapter, he says, uh, happiness belongs to the master of laziness, for whom even the chore of opening and shutting the eyes is tiring, mm. and to no other. Happiness belongs to the master of laziness. Right? You know, when you hear that, you go, God, you know, what are you talking about? I have to work hard. I have to, like, you know, come on. What about my effort? What about my working hard? And he said, no. If, and, and then he uses a very interesting example in that in, in that text, in that in that quotation. He says, you know, the chore of opening and shutting the eyes is tiring. You know, if we were, you know, if we were trying, you know, consciously, if we were paying attention consciously to the chore, to the work of, you know, of shutting, opening and shutting our eyes, of blinking our eyes, it would be very tiring. But we do it naturally, spontaneously, right? Without effort, without thinking about it. And that's what he's saying. That's, that's a master of laziness. Just like you're, you're lazy in that sense about, you know, blinking your eyes. You're not like trying to do it. You're not working at doing it. So too, life, life is like that. Life, all of life should be like blinking your eyes. <laughs> without effort, without, without, you know, stressing out. In another quotation, a very, very, um, a very, very, uh, you know, kind of jarring, you know, quotation, he says, uh, samsara, this suffering life, is nothing other than the compulsion to act. It, it, it is very strong. It's nothing other. Not, not anything other than this kind of feeling that we always have to do something, that we have to do something. And, uh, you know, so then he gets, he, he's, he's, he's getting us, you know, into an area that we're very unfamiliar with, and that is an area of what freedom would really look like. Freedom, liberation, moksha, mukti, jiva mukti. What does freedom really look like? And freedom, among other things, would be freedom from the compulsion to act which is also the freedom from karma. That's what karma is. Karma is created by, by will, by, by wanting, by desire, by, by intention. Karma isn't, isn't uh, created if you're acting spontaneously, actually. If you're acting completely spontaneously, un, unpremeditated action is not karmic, actually. It's uh, without, without any goal, without any action. So, so karma in this text and in, in other great texts of the Indian tradition is contrasted with what's called lila, play. And that, that a jivan mukta, somebody who's liberated in this very lifetime, would play through life, not work. And karma means work. Lila means play. And, uh, and that's what a free person would do. That's how they would act. That's how they would, they would comport themselves as like, like a child at the playground. Mm-hmm. You know, we, if you went to, to a kid who's like, you know, going down the slide or playing on the swings or something and said, why are you doing that? You know, the kid would look at you like, like you're an idiot, like you're a crazy person. Get this adult away from me, you know? They're harassing you. They're asking you stupid questions. Why do you do that? Because it's there to do. Because it's fun. <laughs> I swing not, not to get something out of it. Not, not, not to, you know, reach an end. Not to reach a goal. But because it's pure fun. It's pure play. And all of life should be that way, according to the text like the Ishtabhaki Gita. All of life should be like Lila, like play. So, you know, the question, the, the practical question for all of us is how do we get to that point? You know, how do we get to that point where where we can just play through life safely, okay? Safely. Safe, safe play. So, you know, among the other radical things that this text will, will say is that a person like this, a Jivan Mukta, is beyond good and evil. 
spontaneously. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to worry about morality. What it means is that after, you know, after decades, perhaps lifetimes of effort, of training, of discipline, of rewiring themselves, they can finally trust themselves again. You see, they can trust themselves to be natural, to be spontaneous, because they're completely rewired. They, and, and would never in a million years do anything immoral, <laughs> because they know it's just going to harm them. You know, they understand karma. They understand how karma works and have learned, have, have retrained themselves such that, that they would never ever do anything to harm somebody else because they know harm would come to them, of course, mm -hmm. as, as we're all learning. You know, those of us who call me kindergarten are just kind of learning lessons like this. But Ajiva Mukta has, knows this so thoroughly that it would just be beyond, beyond question. It would just be hard to question to do anything other than, you know, goodness and kindness and compassionate acts towards others so, so they can trust themselves again to act spontaneously. You know, we can't trust ourselves to act spontaneously. We, we non-jivan muktas. <laughs> we have to, we have to discipline ourselves to act properly, to act wisely and compassionately. But a uh, jivan mukta, they've trained themselves so thoroughly, they can, they can act spontaneously safely. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do, and and it's fascinating, and, and I think very subtle, which I, I I'm I'm thinking is why you're saying, um, perhaps that advance this is an advanced text. Um, I'm also wondering, um, just in what you've just explained to us, is it right up until the point that one is a jiva mukta that one is working and is only one you sort of flop over into this new state that you're in the state of play, or can the state of play sort of been begun before the goal is reached? Well, I think, um, you know, as usual, in, in most of these sort of esoteric traditions that I'm talking about, there is a kind of a way in which we practice the goal. We practice the goal. Uh, you know, in Tantra, they say you use the goal as a, as a means, using the goal as a method. And uh, this is, this is a, uh, you know, I think we can do this. I think we can, we can say, well, what, what, would a li what would life be like if I were free? You know, how, how would I imitate a free person? <laughs> you know, like, uh, you, you impersonate, like, you, like we impersonate an officer or something like that. You mm -hmm. impersonate a, you know, a liberated person. You impersonate, uh, you know, what a liberated person would think like, what they would, you know, and how would they, how they would live. And, um, this is, this is, so, so, uh, you can learn to, a training like that, a training in which you are taking the goal as a method, as a means. Taking the end as a as a, as a method, but it requires also a radical kind of um, a radical kind of change in who you think you are. You see, uh, you know, among other things, a free person isn't attached to their ego, isn't attached to their pers uh, personality or their persona. They have realized that they are everything, <laughs> as it says in the Ishtavaka Gita, that, that that there is no in, sort of separate individuality. Uh, you know, and, and a grasping to that, that they've opened up the boundaries of their individuality such that, that they've, they feel literally, uh, you know, uh, identified with everybody and everything. So the, the, the boundaries of ego have, have, have come down. Now, so if you're going to practice taking the, the goal as a, as a method, then you have to practice feeling that way. You have to practice like letting go of the of the ego, letting go of our, our our attachment to ego, which is which is you know anybody who's actually ever tried this will realize you know consciously will will we'll realize just how 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 grasping how how strong the death grip is on the ego when you try to let it go when you try to when you try to be free when you try to be free of the ego. Now that said. We do have experiences, I think, in our daily lives that give us some glimpse into what that would feel like. When we lose ourselves, literally, like when we lose our uh, our self consciousness, when we lose ourselves in an activity, in in a good book, in a television show, or a great movie, or something like that, when we lose ourselves, or in a sporting event, when we lose ourselves like that, it's it's then that we are actually happy. Mm. Then it, it, it is when we get ourselves out of the way that we're actually experiencing the, the highest kind of bliss that we that we achieve, you know, in, in our lives. And uh, there's a big secret there. There's a big kind of like message <laughs> in, in that. It 
is exactly in those experiences when, when we are not paying attention to ourselves. When we are not thinking, well, how am I? Am I okay? Am I happy? Am I sad? Am I cold? Am I hot? Am I bored? Am I, you know, whatever. It's exactly in those experiences, in those times when that inner voice shuts up finally and that we actually live, you know, fully in the moment that we actually like lose ourselves and, 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 and identify with life as it's unfolding. <laughs> totally. Totally identify with what's happening in the present. It's then that we're happy. And that's a, and that's, and that's the experience of, that's an experience of liberation, you see. That's a taste of what liberation could be like. And that's, and that's the kind of lifestyle, that's the kind of, that's the kind of, uh, understanding of themselves and of life that the, that the Shtabhaka Gita is talking about in terms of the Jiva Mukta. That's, that's their mindset 24-7. So they've lost, um, they've lost individuality. They've totally lost individuality. And they've traded it in on a much better model, <laughs> on a kind of a cosmic universality, a kind of an identification with life as it's happening, not not in the you know imaginary future or not in the you know in the past that's already happened, but in fully life, fully living life in the in the in the present, and in an unselfconscious way, and. Uh, and so we can practice that, I think. We can, we can try to practice that. We can, we can try consciously to practice that. And to try to really, uh, you know, pay attention to, to what's happening here and now and, and, and stop the, stop the inner dialogue all the time, the inner monologue of, you know, narrating our experience and just experience our experience, live our experience, not narrate it, not judge it, not, uh, you know, evaluate it, not, and, and, and certainly not try to, you know, kind of, kind of avoid it by daydreaming about what's going to happen next or, you know, what's already happened, but to be fully in the moment, to live fully in the moment. That's what it means. That's what, uh, that's what freedom really would entail, is living fully in the moment and, and, and by, by necessity, uh, happily, because, because you're not there. <laughs> you see, the unhappy you or the happy you, for that matter, is not there. So it's kind of beyond happiness and unhappiness. It's, you know, we don't have language for this. This is, it's beyond duality. Because, uh, be, because we're no longer experiencing things in this kind of dualistic way. Where the subject is, you know, evaluating the object, you know, and evaluating itself as the object, uh, you know, and, and, and on and on it goes. You know, constantly, constantly judging, constantly narrating, constantly, like, you know, comparing, constantly, like, thinking about other things and what's than, than living fully and entirely in the moment. <laughs> it sounds like a goal that one would be attracted to. So you've coined a, fo a phrase or a word, Libraphobia, which is, if I'm understanding it correctly, the reluctance, the deep-seated reluctance and fear of, of, of freedom. Um, yeah. Can you can you tell us a little bit about why we would be that why we would have that given the attractiveness of the of the life of a jiva mukta? Yeah, um, well, it's hard to know. Uh, uh, it's, it's a, that's a really that's a million dollar question right there. Is like why why are we so perversely attached to our suffering? Why are we so perversely attached to what we know is just going to bring us more pain and suffering? And uh, Attachment to the ego is just like that, actually. It has to be. We, and we kind of know that. At some level, we kind of know that this kind of egotistical, self-absorbed, you know, way of life, uh, is, is, is causing us pain. It's causing us hardship. We also know this in terms of our morality. And, you know, we know that, that being angry with other people, being bitter, being envious, you know, ha having this kind of, you know, kind of selfish attitude about our relationships with other people is not happiness conducive. It's not bringing us happiness. We know this. We, we even know at some level that buying another iPad, you know, buying the latest iPad isn't really going to make us happy. You know, it'll bring some little spike of pleasure for a little while and then, you know, be over. And, uh, and then we'll be left wanting more again, you know, craving, uh, all the time craving. So, why it's this way is a, is a, you know, is really a diff difficult question. And as far as I understand it, um, the Buddhist answer to that question is, well, it's always
that way since time without beginning. So there, there's no like, there's no fall in, in, in the Buddhist understanding of things. There's no like, you know, point where you could say, well, before, before everything was fine and then there was a fall like in the Western traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, the Garden of Eden story that there was some kind of fall from grace or something. It's always been this way. From beginningless time, we've always been dissatisfied. We've always been We've all, and, and because we've been this way since beginningless time, for, for beginningless time, it, it, it is so hardwired, it is so habitual, that any alternative seems scary. And so this is, now we get into what I call libraphobia, the fear of freedom. You know, and, and we are in prison cells of our own making. It's not like somebody else put us into, into these kinds of you know, imprisonment. We have put ourselves in them, and 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 we closed the door and and pretended as if it were locked. <laughs> and a text like the Astavaka Gita comes along and goes, "Look, the door has always been open. Just walk out. Just walk out of the cell." And then and then you know you read these like radical passages about how there's nothing to do and being the master of laziness and don't meditate, don't. Don't don't make efforts and so forth. And we go, no, I want to stay in myself. I've always done, I've always had, the, you know, like this. I've always been like, living a life where, you know, I've tried and I've made efforts and I've striven and I've, you know, disciplined myself and I've tried to, you know, meditate every day and tried to do my yoga. I've always done this like this. This is, this is, the, way I, this is the way I'm accustomed. But we don't realize that that at a certain level, because now I'm not saying that those that that discipline like that, spiritual discipline like that, isn't useful. It is. It is not only useful; it's mandatory. It's the sine qua non, without which nothing else will occur. But at a certain point, you have to kind of notice that that those those kinds of that kind of discipline is not freedom. <laughs> that that kind of that kind even spiritual discipline is not freedom. Freedom comes by walking out of the out of all cells, including the cells of your discipline, <laughs> and being free. Freedom and discipline are two different things. Freedom, you could say, comes from discipline. You see, discipline is the, is the sine qua non, is the, is the predecessor, the pre- prerequisite for freedom. But discipline is not freedom. Freedom is spontaneous. Freedom is not discipline. Freedom is freedom. And we're afraid of that. We're, you know, I bet you people who are listening to this right now are going, uh, uh, in some part of their mind is going, no, no, I don't want it. If that's what freedom is, I don't want freedom. <laughs> I, I don't trust myself. And, you know, and for most of us, we shouldn't trust ourselves. We're not ready for freedom. You see, we're still in the discipline stage, maybe. But, but if, we're, if we're serious about trying to reach the goal of a spiritual life in this lifetime, not when we're dead, okay, not when we flap, flap, flap off to Alpha Centauri, after we, you know, leave this body, if we're interested in, in liberation in this very lifetime, then we have to start studying what that, what that entails, what it, what it means, what, what that state would be like. You can't reach a goal you haven't imagined. You can't reach a goal that you haven't constituted in your mind clearly as to what it is. So constitute it. Think about it. Think about freedom. This is a very, very advanced, this is, this is an advanced practice that we can all do, uh, you know, sort of safely is to just, you know, do what I call a couch potato contemplation on a, on a daily basis, which is, you know, to just sit around, you know, on your sofa or on your barco lounger or whatever it is, a nice, comfortable thing, close your eyes, and imagine what it would be like to be totally free. Just imagine it. Just put your mind in that headspace. And uh, that's a very, very powerful practice, actually. That's a very advanced practice. That's a tantric practice. But, uh, and, and it's very, very easy to do. You know, it doesn't take like, you know, any, any kind of, you know, kind of special equipment or anything like that. <laughs> and very, very powerful. You see, you're imagining the goal and you're, and you're, and you're training your mind to think about the goal. You're training your mind to put, to put it, to put the mind in that headspace and to, and to think, what, what would, what would my life be? What would my mind be? What would my perception be if I were totally free? If I had no stress, no problems, no anxieties, no worries, no unhappiness of any sort, you see, what would my life be? What would my head, head space be? So, 
you know, you can overcome liberophobia by, by doing a practice like that on a, on a daily basis and by studying a text like the Ishtabhaka Gita over those three weekends in, uh, in April, late April and May, uh, that, you know, and, and, and see, and see what, see, look at it, you know, study a description of the free state. He's going to unpack it for us, really. That's what he does in the text, right? He unpacks freedom um, and what the understanding would be, what your mindset would be, what your life would be, all of what you just outlined. He unpacks that for us in the in the text, and then you do so in the teachings. Yeah, sure does. And so, um, you know, and, and like I said, I mean, it's not, it is an advanced text, but we'll be like, you know, we'll be kind of going up and down the scales a little bit and talking also about the prerequisites to, to get into a, spa- uh, a place like this. And, uh, you know, the text does go into some of some of that as well. Uh, you know, you can't just jump into a, a practice like this without preparation. But uh, so we'll talk about the preparation. We'll talk about what kinds of what kinds of practices we actually can do as we develop ourselves to get to the point, to develop ourselves to get to the point where we can truly discover that that we've always been free, that the, that the jail door has always been unlocked, and all we need to do is walk out of it. I mean, one of the, just one, one more thing. I think you know at least. Unless you want to talk about something else, but uh, one of the one of the greatest quotations from this text, a very famous quotation, uh, it, it goes like this: um, uh, "The one who thinks he is free is free. The one who thinks he is bound is bound. It's all just in the mind." If you think that, if, I mean, think, thinking that you're free doesn't mean, oh, okay, I think I'll, I'll, I'll pretend like I'm free. <laughs> it means you're, co- you're totally convinced that you've always been free, you know. But there is, there is no other freedom than that. And there is no other bondage than that. It's just a mindset, you see. It's just a, it's just a perspective. And, uh, so how can we change our perspective from the perspective of being bound, of being unliberated, of being in samsara? To a perspective that would that would bring us instantaneously, you know, in a, in a moment. You see, if if the perspective was full, was was full on, was 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 total, in a moment we would be liberated. You see, in a moment we would be free. <laughs> it's just in our hands. It's all it's all in our hands. So, you know, the the prison door has always been opened. The prison is a prison of our own making. We can walk out of it. You know, pretty much at any time. But it takes a little. It takes training to realize that that the door has been opened. You see, it takes training. It takes time. It takes understanding to actually really be in that state of mind that you're talking about. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited about what you're offering on this course. Um, One last question to wrap up our interview. Um, You're teaching this in a new way. These transmissions used to be almost always in person, and you're using the medium of... Um, you know, online and, and, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that and how the students will interact with you and so forth? Yeah, um, I, I have never done a course like this through Yoga Studies Institute, so it'll be new for me. I used to teach, um, distant learning when I was teaching at the university, so I, I have some idea of how it'll work. Uh, we will, um, there will be chances for people to send in questions and we'll have at least that one whole class period for, for questions. So there will be interaction, some interaction. Uh, and the, the classes will be, um, will be broadcast live at, at, you know, at, at uh, times that will work for people pretty much around the world. Um, we, we spent a lot of time. To, that was the hardest part of the course is trying to get the time so that, it, you know, so that it wasn't like in 3 a.m. in the morning somewhere. Uh, I think it'll work pretty much everywhere except for maybe Europe. Anyway, uh, um, and and then those classes will be also archived. So um, people, if you know, you, if you can't can't come to a class or if you want to watch it again, if you can't if you can't be there live in front of your computer, and or you know, uh, or you just want to watch the class again, you'll, you'll be able to do that for the price of admission. I think the course is running for two hundred dollars U.S., which is. Um, what about one hundred and ten dollars Canadian nowadays? Uh, <laughs> so you guys should <laughs> twenty five dollars a class, something like that. Uh, so um, so we'll see how it goes. I uh, I'm excited about it. It's you know it's it, it's a technology. Many people are using this technology now for personal reasons. You know, uh, skyping and keeping in touch with people around the world through through the internet and so forth. So we'll see how it works in a pedagogical way and. Uh, 
You know, I, I think it'll be fine, actually. I think in there are many ways in which uh, this kind of approach to a course, um, this kind of, you know, this kind of package, this kind of context for a course might might make it, uh, you know, kind of more impactful in a way that rather than less. I mean, you know, it's when you go to a class live, uh, you know, things are happening so fast that, you know, kind of you don't really, oftentimes it just is going in one year and out the other or just over your head or something, this is a way to do it a little bit more deliberately where you can watch the class again, where you can, you know, you, you can pause it, you know, if you wanted to as you're doing the rerun and, and where you're, you know, we're, we're now also all of us, um, you know, kind of uh, habituated to watching, you know, screens very intently. And uh, maybe we're maybe we actually concentrate more on screens than we do on 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 people in in, in real life interactions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. it's possible that you know students will actually pay more attention rather than less uh, right. in a class that's being you know broadcast through the computer. And they won't have the distraction or the you know exhaustion of travel, the distraction of you know anything else going on in the environment. They'll be in the comfort of their own home. And they can just really just right. tune into the teachings. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, so, so I'm very excited about it, and hopefully it'll you know all work out great. And um, and like I said, if you wanted to, you know, if you're interested in the course, please come to uh, to my website, Lama Marut, one word, L A M A M A R U T dot org. Okay. And uh, there's a there's a, a link right on the homepage to uh, to find out more about the course and how to register and how to participate and. Uh, yeah, it'll be very exciting. Uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us a bit more about this text and about the teachings that you've got coming up. I hope that you'll join us again. In fact, we're hoping that you'll join us and talk to us about Spiritual Renegade, um, your new book that's come, coming out in June, right? May, sorry. Yeah, June, June is um, a spiritual renegade's guide to the good life. And, uh, yeah, um, I'd love to talk about the book with you guys. Uh, and I'm looking forward to also seeing you all in Vancouver in July for a few days uh, while, while we visit you there on our book tour. Okay, terrific. All right, thanks so much, Summer Root. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings. Thank you.